welcome everybody to the Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival podcast. I'm your host, Nick Irvin. Join me as we dig a bit deeper into the films and events of this year's 2020 festival. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival podcast. Whether you are at work, in your car, or relaxing at home, I hope you enjoy this talk. Uh, We talk with Scott Saunders and Lindsay Sterling about the film The Nature Makers. Now, if you haven't seen this film yet and want to before we talk about it, uh, you might have to wait a little bit. It's going through the film festival rotation right now, but keep checking thenaturemakers.com and see if you can grab it. If you have seen it, preferably at the Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival, then I think you'll really enjoy this conversation digging just a little bit deeper into the film. Thanks again for joining us, and don't forget to download all the other Flag Mountain Film Fest episodes. Now, let's start the show. What I would have to do before I would record, the night before I'd have to have a stiff drink. Really? Yeah, because it, it changes definitely your, changes the quality of my voice for the better. Spot. It was terrible. But, you know, <laughs> we make we sacrifices yeah. <laughs> for film. Right. It's that important. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative of your great links that you've gone to yeah, to make yeah, a strong yeah. drink the night before narrating the, the film. Yeah, the sacrifices. Well, <laughs> and because I constantly rewrote the narration, it was a lot of nights of... Yeah. of <laughs> Preparatory <laughs> drinking. Wow. Yeah. Didn't even know you could have that kind of prep. Yeah. So yeah. Nature Maker's uh, narration fueled by by what? By whiskey? By beer? What, what drinks whatever, are you talking whatever about? Whatever was handy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what, you know. That's my style. <laughs> yeah. You know. I wasn't picky. It's like, the job has to get done. Yeah. We'll do what it takes. Well, I, I actually think your voice sounded great in the film, and it's soothing, and it's one of the first things you hear and see and experience. Oh. So, I think the alcohol oh. is working. Oh. Well, it, it <laughs> you know, it's absolutely excruciating for me when it, when when that scratchy voice comes on. It's like, oh God, oh, really? That guy again. Oh, <laughs> will he just shut up and go away? Nobody else is having that experience. Oh, no. no, well, your I'm inner ha- critic voice. Maybe you oh. can turn it down a little. Well, whatever it takes to make a great film, um, your inner critic did a great job. Your outer critic, your inner critic, your everything oh. <laughs> was was really, really cool. Oh, thank you. That's great. I was actually excited, like you said, when, when I heard your voice on the narration, um, knowing and figuring that was you. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is going to be nice. This is going to be good. Right. I think <laughs> when the people put together, you do the intro, and they hear you speak, and then you're the first voice in the film too it's it's uh, comforting well you know i think what, what one of the you know when when you see documentaries often the filmmaker will put themselves in the film and that is it a kind of often a wonderful storytelling device because mm-hmm. it it gives the film a central character to follow in you know what is sometimes a complicated story and um i think I, I didn't want there to be narration at all in the film, but as I was editing it, I realized that um, the audience sort of needed the you know the author's voice in a way. It needed the presence of the filmmaker. So um, that that was a decision that was not there at the beginning, but it, it kind of evolved over the course of editing the film. So 
Well, that's really interesting to know. Like those are the little tidbits that I love to to be able to get from sitting down here. And so not starting out with that, but bringing that, I would, I don't know, maybe I'm throwing my own opinion out in this, but more kind of an authoritative feel to it um, when you come on there and, mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, cool. Like this is kind of the expert voice. This is the guy that's been here throughout the entire process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that may be what it added for me. You're like a guide. Yeah, yeah, I'm the field guide. Yeah, that, and that's what it, you know, how it was intended to be you know rather than uh you know because i think the temptation is always to you know call up some famous person you might know and see if they'll they'll do the narration for you and then you can put their name on the marquee but you know what what i find in films is that sometimes that 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 sometimes sort of creates a little bit of distance between you know the voice of the filmmaker and and the actual film so you know, I, I like hearing the personality because it's more than hearing the voice. You're hearing the, the personality and the sensibility of, you know, of the filmmaker or filmmakers when you hear that voice. Yeah, you said that so much better than that's exactly what I was mm. feeling. You bring in that mm. um, that honest and I, another word for authoritative. I don't know some other mm. word that's better than that. But the uh, yeah, the expert voice in there. Mm. Um, so I guess we'll. We started off with a great part of the conversation, but who the heck are we talking to here? <laughs> We're just having a random conversation. Um, introduce yourselves because we have the, the filmmakers and the uh, creators, and we'll hear all the different hats that you guys wore for this film, uh, The Nature Makers. So, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I, I'm the horse voice, uh, Scott Saunders, director and producer of The Nature Makers, and uh, uh, I'm here with... Lindsay Sterling Crank. I'm the director for the Humane Society of the United States Prairie Dog Program. Excellent. Well, welcome, guys. We're here at the wonderful Babbitt's Outfitters, Babbitt Brothers, uh, staple here in Flagstaff, and always big supporters for the Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival. And so welcome to Tent Talks and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, great to be here, really. So your film is just kind of a a, a little loose summary here is the story of three different huge efforts at i think conservation is at the core and there are animals involved but it digs deeper than just the animals um, as it always does and so if you could give me (laughs) two sentences to explain the title the nature makers the, the title is uh, very intentionally a bit of a provocation because the idea that uh, there would be human makers of nature is uh, kind of preposterous. But at the same time, it, it also speaks, this is more than two sentences, by the way, so I'm, more, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm running on here. But it, it, the, we have reached the point now where, <clears throat> excuse me, we've reached the point where human impacts on the planet are so monumental that um, that that humans now have to intervene to try to keep what remains of the natural world around and so in in some kind of crazy sense humans have become the makers of habitat the makers of uh, of places where the wild can still exist and I think what we try to do in the film is it is show how people are using technology as a way, te- technology, equipment, machines, as a way of trying to defend the natural world, which I just find deliciously ironic that, uh, that 
we have gotten to the point now where we have to use the most unnatural uh, tools as a way of defending what remains of nature. Mm. Um, you know, at one point we were, when we were toying with titles for the film, we, you know, one working title for about 15 minutes was, you know, uh, Machines for Nature, mm-hmm. which, which doesn't really work as a title because it speaks to the machines. It doesn't speak to the people who do the work. And the film is very much about uh, the people who, who are working so hard and so resourcefully on behalf of, of nature. And it also is about um, the species, the, 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 the wildlife that they are working to protect. So The Nature Makers is a much better title than Machines for Nature. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's perfect, and I I love that I love the word and the phrase ironically delicious or deliciously ironic, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it is. And that you open up with that right off the bat with the phrase, um, the quote, uh, "We suddenly find ourselves sort of running a planet," <laughs> and that's that can be that's a thread that we're starting to see I think over and over again. Whether it's the issues that you brought up with creating habitat because we're destroying it. Or you can talk about like hunting, how we've taken out predators, so we have to become the hunters. You know, we're having to actually start, like it says, running the planet. And so uh, I like that title. I thought it really hit me really right off the bat. I didn't know when I first started watching it what it was going to be about. Mm. But about five minutes in, I was like, oh, nature makers. Got it. That's cool. (laughs) That's great. I felt like it really resonated, too, because when I looked around at my team and the other teams in the movie, I was thinking... Oh yeah, they're all making nature. Like they're nature makers. Yeah, yeah. And Good that job. that quote, I when I saw it, you could change one word, or actually maybe even I should have looked how many letters. Um, we suddenly find ourselves running nature, and that was mm. the first step instead of running nature. So mm. going from running to running, mm. I thought was uh, mm-hmm. I don't know that mm. kind of popped in my head. Mm-hmm. <coughs> but I, I I think that I I mean I think that observation also speaks to what we were trying to do with the film, which was. You know, make something that wasn't, uh, you know, unrelentingly negative, you know, and I, 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 you know, one bit, we haven't had that many public screenings yet, but in the public screenings we've had, the the consistent feedback we've been getting from people is that, oh, you know, thank God there's a, you know, an environmental documentary that isn't just bleak. And, you know, what in, in, in all of the three stories in the film, you see people working really hard and, and the work actually amounting to something. It pays off, you know, the, the you know, I don't know, it, we witness, you know, a couple of hundred prairie dog lives a being saved right. and a new colony formed, yeah. which is really something. I mean, how, you know, how often can you see a film where 200 lives are actually saved on screen? <laughs> and I mean, it's the same thing with the Chub in the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, also the cranes in, in Nebraska. And just between the time when we finished shooting there and now the number of cranes coming through uh, Nebraska have increased pretty significantly. So these are three optimistic stories, guardedly optimistic. I mean, you know, they're not, it's not foolishly optimistic because, you know, people who work to protect the natural world are up against a lot of big forces and it's not easy but you know I think what we're trying to point out is that if if you if you know if you're willing to work hard and you're willing to like get in there and work on behalf of the natural world 
you can make an enormous difference. And I think that's a message of hope that people need to hear. That's what I was just going to say. It's a glimpse of hope. And it it reminds me of Jane Goodall, who would love our efforts and has supported us. And her just one comment that she always ends up coming back to is, there's always hope. And I think the movie gives a little glimpse into three hopeful um, teams. Yeah, absolutely. That positive thread is so refreshing. Like mm-hmm. you said, with environmental films, a lot of times it's kind of like beating us into mm-hmm. into action. Um, but this one, at the, at the end of what you just said about the, the people, hard work. Hard work was a huge theme. You saw so many dirty faces and just <laughs> the grit and these like slow motion shots of someone who's filthy from an auger throwing dirt all over them or they're, you know, bushwhacking to, to get you know through into the to the little colorado river or wherever they were at for the for the humpback so that hard work and big smiles big dirty grinning smiles and positivity is something that i you know ended when when the credits started rolling a big old smile was on my face and i wanted to ask you a little bit later but i'll ask you now because we're talking about this positivity the reaction of the crowds during these screen, screenings, screamings, I almost said, because <laughs> they, at the end, were probably a couple people screaming in, in delight yeah. and, and, and ready to take action because they see that hope, not because they see the fear. Mm. And so I wanted to ask if you've, you've noticed, wh- what's the reactions been like at the end of the, at the screenings? I think it's been great. I mean, I'm smiling just talking about it or thinking about it. And I think, um, I, you know, the work is super hard. And, you know, being a prairie dog advocate is like always being a skunk in the room. And so having this um, opportunity to have a feel good feeling and share that in a community or in a crowd or in an audience where everybody's feeling good about something that we're doing, I think might invigorate us to keep going, you know? And I, I so yes, I think every time I, at the end of a screening, I look at Scott and I said, you made a good movie, you know, <laughs> and people are happy and thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. But so I, but I, you know, I think that that's really important that, you know, as you say, so, you know, sometimes when you walk into the room at a, uh, a city council meeting, people are like, oh, God, it's the prairie dog lady again. <laughs> and and so for, you know, for you to be, you know, one of the heroes of the story is is fantastic, I think, because, it, you know, it, it really is an uphill battle so much totally. of the time. Right. It's nice to have a, a different feeling and visceral experience because so much of our other experience is so difficult and oppressive even just pushing down i feel pushed down on a lot yeah can you speak to that i think just you know prairie dogs can be a hard species for some to live with and um you know asking people to do something harder um, to live with them instead of kill them which is what we've been just accustomed to doing for generations um is asking somebody to change and asking somebody to get out of the box and um, do something different. And change is hard for all of us, no matter if we want to change or not. And um, prairie dogs are definitely the bottom of the totem pole. And so just really continually rising up to speaking up for the biggest underdog of the West over and over and over again, because you come into these communities over and over and over again um, and you know try to work on a more wildlife-friendly plan for our communities um you get beat down every time and it's really just where you end up together and if you can rise up or rise into or rise above that conflict to get through it into a way that has a little bit of a better outcome each time it's it'll take a lot out of you 
yeah. we, when we were filming in Colorado, um, we, we were fil- <laughs> we were filming on a, a, a site that had been farmland, it was, and it was going to be developed uh, into, into a housing development, and it was in sight of a a very busy road and while uh, you know wh- while we were filming people would drive by in their cars and they would shout obscenities at us because they knew what these guys they knew they were working with prairie dogs really? and you know and and one day we were even you know i don't w- one day bullets started flying over our heads oh my gosh and i don't know whether it was intentional whether they were trying to just send a signal to the crazy prairie dog people but bullets were definitely flying over our heads. I, and, and actually, during the credit sequence, my, we were eating lunch, and my camera was away, so I didn't get to, to film it, but people were mic'd up. And so there's actually audio of the bullet. You can hear the, the ping of the bullets flying over. So I put that in the credit I sequence. I just started listening to that. Yeah. I was wondering yesterday, what is that? So you can, you can hear it. If you yeah. can hear the ping and one of the of, bullets. And um, one of our team members, Kristen Nelson, she gets up and starts going after them to say, what are you doing? And it's just, it's just a huge um, example of how much guts it really takes to do this work. You have to, it takes a lot of guts and you got to be confident. And I'm super grateful of everybody who's ever stood up to the task. That is, that is Unbelievable. That is crazy <laughs> that people, I mean, I understand the, you know, the passion and the, and the anger, um, but to go as far as firing, firing bullets definitely over someone. definitely in my job many times. Really? Well, thank you for being one. You just talked about taking guts and all that stuff. Yeah. That's, I mean, you're smiling right now, but oh, you, something you've... might be wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's wrong, then, uh, at least, uh, it's wrong in an amazing way. Thank you. Uh, it's doing great stuff. Cool. Man, wow. Uh, so following bullets being shot over you is kind of tough. Okay, we're done. Thank tough. you very yeah, much. Yeah, well, that's uh, it. We're done. <laughs> Gone. Um, but um, you talked about being on the sites, and that was one question I had if, if you, Scott, were able to be at the all, the all the different sites of the filming. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the film was basically made by two of us. Oh. It, it was me and... Uh, uh, a brilliant cinematographer named Octay Ortobasi, who's also a, a co-producer on the film, and he he devoted himself completely to this. So, you know, most of the time it was only two of us, and which will be surprising because in in some of the shots clearly there are like five cameras going, but there were still only two of us <laughs> there. Um, Very impressive. So yeah, yeah that's always uh, a question I've pretty much asked all the all the filmmakers is like what the crew was like, and I'm so surprised <laughs> at how 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 much can be done with so little people, but you balance that out with the passion and the and the hard work. So this one in particular, the amazing you know cinematography and and cinematic feel of it, uh, I think this one surprises me the most that there's only about two people on there just how well it was put together with with just you guys's effort yeah well you know we we have a lot of gear you know because we you know we do this we do this for a living and so we were able to sort of use our resources from uh our you know our money gigs uh and to bring it to to this project and so you know every shoot was different literally every day required a different configuration of of cameras and audio and so we were kind of able to apply the best tool for the job so when we were filming with the cranes we were filming with um, you know an extremely high resolution 
camera that could record in you know in very slow motion and we had a, a you know a lens that was probably four feet long it was you know rigging that up was extremely complicated mm. um and that's how we were able to get the shots that look like we're literally flying along with the cranes because in the camera and the lens was was just so long that it gave us tremendous reach. So that was that was one of the tools we had. And then there were other times where, when we were shooting underwater in the Grand Canyon, we just used little GoPros. So it it, it was the full spectrum of gear. I think we probably used maybe. 12 to 15 different cameras wow. on the film. And then the audio was, we, we didn't have a sound person. So uh, what I would usually do is clip a, a little portable recorder on people and just turn it on at the beginning of the day and let it run all, all day. And sometimes huh. we were horrified that we would realize we were still on the mic. <laughs> I mean, like, things were happening behind the scenes. There's always drama yeah. in the field. You never, relationships oh. are forming or ending or, oh. we, you know, we are just, your regular life still goes on. And yeah. sometimes we'd be like, oh, do you think this is on? <laughs> <laughs> So a little bit of, of trust uh, with the filmmaker on, oh, yeah, on we, that part. Well, I have no idea what he did actually here. And we, I think he should never. It's all on the internet. I, I it's all out there. you never tell us what you actually yeah. heard. But he would say, oh, no, we're not going to listen to any of that because you're not being filmed. And we only go through the stuff that, you know, we're, we're, we're recording when you're filmed. And so we were relieved often, but sometimes also horrified to realize we were mic'd up and yeah. we had forgotten for the last hour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what <laughs> secret, secrets you were revealing about. Yeah, I know. Or just it's all on tape. It's yeah. all there. Yeah, the, the little part about relationships beginning or ending. That's right. hilarious. Right, <laughs> that's right. I mean, there. life still goes on. It does. Whether you're making a movie or not. Uh, now, for, that's interesting. My first thought when you talk about miking people up all day, Grand Canyon <laughs> is very remote. Um, and so that takes you know batteries that takes power um how were you able to deal with uh specifically that it could have been an issue with other spots but with grand canyon having that much power yeah because a big part of of our our day was <clears throat> excuse me a big part of our day was um you know, going back and downloading all of the you know all all the images we had shot and recharging our batteries but when you go into the grand canyon for several days you can't recharge it all so we just we took a lot of batteries and we also we took smaller cameras than we normally would have um, because they use a lot less power and we had a little little solar charger so when we would shoot during the day we'd put the dead batteries on the solar charger and that would give us a little bit of extra juice and so uh, we, we were just pretty strategic about our, our choice of equipment. You know, I was shooting with a camera that really needed one battery all day. And mm. so I took about, you know, eight batteries in. So I, I was pretty well covered. Um, so you just, again, it's just a question of choosing the right tool for a particular, you know, a particular job. But, it, you know, it was, that was, the logistics of that were a little complicated because we could, um, we the, the National Park Service crew that we filmed with was able to come in on the helicopter. But because Octay and I were not Park Service employees, we couldn't fly on the helicopter. So we had to hike in. So we were able to fly some of our gear in on the helicopter, but most of it we had to bring in on our back. So, you know, it was a pretty grueling, 
you know, long hike down into the canyon with a lot of gear on our back. And it was, it was a challenge. I, tra I, I trained for about three months, actually. Really? Yeah, nice. I, I, I would go out every day in my neighborhood in Venice Beach with a, with a, a backpack <laughs> filled with weights. And I would hike, on, you know, the, the, the hills uh, in my neighborhood nice. to, try to, to try to get in shape. And, yeah, that was, that was, I saw a different side of Venice, walking around Venice with a, with a backpack on. People thought I was part of a different tribe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. I love hearing that. I, I was going to ask about that, about getting into the canyon. So you, you definitely earned it, um, getting down in there. And you were down in Havasu Creek as well. Cause, so that one's even, I mean, getting down to Bright Angel Creek is, is definitely a, an effort as well. But getting out of Havasu Creek, that's, that's a nice, big, steep Hot cloud. What time of, of year were you? It, fortunately, it was May, so okay. it wasn't that hot yet. Well, yeah, still, still probably. Hot. Yeah, I, still pretty hot. They were definitely pouring sweat, and it's one of my uh, favorite images: is that the helicopter flies away with the staff, and then there's the two filmmakers with these giant backpacks in the canyon in front of them, and you know they just start up the stairs and the steps that are just drenched. I mean, Venice Beach can pre prepare you for the Grand Canyon, have yeah. a supine no matter what. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. You talked about the, the different tools and the different cameras and something like 15 or so different cameras you used. One, uh, a couple of the shots with the cranes, I was very enamored by. And you talk about the the speed for the slow motion. Do you remember what, what frame? Uh, I think it was 240 frames oh per second. That's, that's awesome. What, a, what an amazing tool to be able to use. Because so sharp, I mean, the glass was just amazing in, it, in itself. But those, those wing motions and everything to capture those, that was... I just want to say that was beautiful. No, thank you. Yeah, well, you know, it was um, at, it was really only as we were filming that I realized what an important part of the story that was going to be was the the sort of the beauty and the, the grace of you know, in particular the cranes. Just you know, because you you can you can see the life energy as you just see the wings flapping and. Um, you just you see the way they ride the air and and the way they land and the way they take off and it's it's just an amazingly beautiful sight and so to be able to watch it in slow motion is 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 just kind of this exquisite experience an experience you gave to us through through the the camera work and the tools because that is a very important part i think especially birds being able to see them and all the tiny, I think one of the uh, film people, <laughs> one of the characters said, you can really see and experience every single feather. Mm. And that's something you don't capture with a lot of other animals. It's cool to see, you know, uh, a fish swim in slow motion or a prairie dog being super cute in slow motion. But when the bird flies mm. and when they interact with each other in the air, mm. one of the characters said, they never touch wings and they're real close to each other. And there's, you know, thousands of them. Um, so that shot really did bring um, an elegance to the creature that you might not see um, without that amazing, amazing cinematography. And, 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 you know, watching them in real life and then watching them, you know, as I was editing, it's made me really aware of, of you know, of, of other birds. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm just walking around town and mm -hmm. maybe it's a little windy and I see a bird up there just kind of like, it, it just like riding the wind and it's like, oh, that bird is playing <laughs> and that like, you know, it's, and it's a, uh, you realize it's a kind of like sensuous aesthetic experience for that, 
animal to be up there and kind of, you know, it's like feeling its body against the wind and feeling the way the wind is moving it and how it reacts. And, and you see, you know, it's, it's play behavior, you know, they're, they're enjoying it. They're not, they're not just hunting or doing something utilitarian. They're enjoying themselves. And, and, and that was something, you know, I'm a city guy, so that was something I didn't really ever understand about you know, wild things. Hmm. So it's, you know, that's, that's one thing I've come away with from the film is, is, is seeing how, you know, how, how animals have that kind of, that, that, you know, that sense of like joy and play hmm. and fun. Nice. That connection so important because if you don't really find that connection, I feel at least then you're less apt to protect it. Hmm. Um, first, you know something, then you make a connection with it and then you're apt to protect it. I was just at breakfast this morning. I was talking to uh, Consul Bochikov, the you know the, the the prairie dog language expert. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it, we were talking about how um, you know we so often think of anything that's non-human as a kind of resource to exploit. Mm. You know, it's it, and and as long as we think about everything other than the human world as a resource we can never really protect it because it's always just something there for us to use for our advantage you know to something for us to eat or something for us to you know make money from and so why would we ever want to protect that it's just there for for our use but once we begin to think about these species as actual living sentient beings that like to play in the wind and have families and have emotional lives, then it, it fundamentally changes our relationship to them. And at that point, we can begin to think about taking care of them the way they, they, you know, they need to be taken care of now in, in, in a human world. Yeah. Absolutely. And speaking of bonds and playing, you have in the film some of the cutest, most playful creatures. I mean, a, a humpback chub is, is very, you know, cute as well, I guess, in its own right. But this playfulness really, I think, helped make that connection. Why prairie dogs? Oh, it was the only job available <laughs> when I moved to Boulder. That was, I had like a, a few criteria. I wanted to stay working for wildlife, but I wanted to... Um, work for a cause this time. I had just been working on a lot of different research studies and I wanted to work for a cause. And this was the, the only job that was available when I moved there. <laughs> I had gone there to go to grad school and study bighorn sheep. And then I got there and I was like, I don't want to go sit in a classroom. I can't do that right now. I'd been traveling all over the world and working on wildlife studies and I didn't want to go back to school. And then I got this prairie dog job. And that was 20 years ago. What was your first experience with a prairie dog? Um, I think we... We were relocating prairie dogs. Yeah? Yeah. I was um, just, there was a woman who was probably much like me now, and she was looking for help, and she pulled up in her truck, and I got in her truck, and she said, let me show you what we're up to. And we went, and there was a golf course, and it had prairie dogs on it, and the golf course didn't want the prairie dogs on it. And she said, so we're trying to get them to let us trap and relocate them. And then she showed us the place where they were going. And it was a much better, you know, suitable, protected conservation area. And it was a grassland. And 
Um, it was all in the urban, you know, kind of area, the Front Range in Colorado. And since then, we've really kind of expanded our work because the prairie dog issue has become more dire since then. Sylvatic plague has really gotten to their populations. And they have, you know, against all the human and man-made threats, now they have this exotic disease that they can't keep up with. So we've kind of shifted our efforts to include a little bit of urban work, but more where we're protecting and keeping prairie dogs on the landscape in some of these key conservation areas. And if anyone is wondering if they heard right, yes, plague. And I'm very well versed in, in plague and prairie dogs mm -hmm. out where I used to live in a little outskirts area. We would see that come through every once in a while. So that's something that's in all communities in the United States? Right. Um, you could find it anywhere if you looked for it. <laughs> you could find plague anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's about right. It's actually called Yersinia pestis. It's a bacteria, and prairie dogs have no immunity to it. And people think, oh, prairie dogs carry plague, you know, but they actually can't carry plague because they have no immunity to it, so they are a victim of plague. And plague kind of moves its way through our environment. And you can see it pop up here and there based on what species it is in. So prey dogs are more an indicator that that disease is in our environment. Um, but lots of, I think, 78 different species of mammals can actually live with plague, and prairie dogs are not one of them. Hmm, really? Yeah, and it's fleas that some prairie dogs have fleas and some don't, and some are the right species and some aren't, and you just kind of have to get that perfect storm to come together, and it can take out their colony in 24 hours. In 24 hours? 24 hours. Oh, man. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so, you know, I think people have the, the misconception that if they see prairie dogs, it's like, uh-oh, maybe the plague is around, but it's actually quite the opposite. Sure. It, it, if, if you see prairie dogs, it's an indication that, you know, that ecosystem is uh, probably pretty healthy and, there, and plague isn't there. So right. it's, a, it's a sign of, of health hmm. yeah. as opposed to... A, an active, up, healthy prairie dog An active prairie dog colony is a healthy prairie dog colony because huh. they can't live with plague. So they go underground and die pretty much immediately. That's something good to know, absolutely, because I was always worried being out there. You know, it. you hear it, you hear the stories, um, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many of them. Right. We it's might be in myth. trouble, but it's the opposite. Correct. Huh. It's, it's certainly something we should be aware of. You know, we're not, I'm not saying don't be aware, <laughs> but, you know, we sometimes wear flea spray or long pants when you're on a prairie dog colony or, you know, it's up to you what yeah. kind of precautions you want to take. Yeah. What was it like the first time you grabbed a prairie dog out of a hole? Oh, there it's scary. That same woman, Susan Honeycutt, <laughs> she made me watch her do it for three weeks before I grabbed one. And by the time I was ready, I was like, <laughs> like I was extremely fast and I had it down. And you put your hand in the burrow first oh. and then they start coming up slowly and they feel, you can feel their oh. fingertips on your um, palm of your hand that you've put down into the burrow and you have to leave it there completely still and then when they come out enough you can grab them right behind the neck in a way and pull them out with your hand and grab them behind the neck and then put them into the kennel and it, all of that takes about half a millisecond but um well not the not waiting for them to come up that takes a second but I'm an extremely impatient person and so that was hard for me definitely got bit a few times yeah with gloves or without, I mean... You know, I can't catch them very well with gloves, so I do it without you gloves. Go, you go barehanded. You are a prairie dog catching Jedi. I don't know about that, but when I'm, I mean, just when they're being flushed with soap foam, you know, otherwise I keep my gloves on for sure. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm happy I asked that question, but I also like have a shiver going up my spine thinking of those little <laughs> tiny claws walking those, up they your They are hands. sharp, those claws. Have you ever caught one before? I, 
I didn't. No, I didn't catch one. But I. I but I held them. How did we yeah. let that happen? <clears throat> I know. No, I was. I was. You did hold one. <clears throat> I did hold okay, one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, I mean, you're smart. <laughs> you know, you're exactly. not going to stick your hand down. Are you yeah. calling me no. stupid? <laughs> no, not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me jot down another edit point there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, but it takes. You took three weeks. You know, like you said, it was. It's not something right. to because you're you're handling another. You know, little right. as tough as they are, they're probably somewhat fragile as well. And totally. and so, um, yeah, in, in a serious point, like, yeah, you have to make sure you're trained and you're going to do it right. I feel like we did experience maybe the first or one of the first catches from the it, it was some guy. Logan. Yes. Logan, Logan Parr. Mm. Yeah. Kristen Botsett was teaching him or, you know, kind of coaching him because she had done it before he had. So she was sharing him, wait, wait, wait until the right point. And then he, he went in and got it. So, yes, he, he learned patience, too. And they did a great job. They, I thought they were a great part of the movie. I love that scene because as soon as he does find that you see him like waiting and then he catches it and she like immediately gives him like this pat on the back. And that's where I saw. <laughs> and, and that was a great spot right there to to show the connection of the workers as well. But they that. actually got together through that job. Oh, that was one of the mic- <laughs> still mic'd together. up. That was cute. No. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Bringing people together with Prairie Dogs. That's right, baby. Anyway, we can do it. <laughs> So Grand Canyon is in our backyard here in Flagstaff, and I think a lot of the people who watch this film, if not all of them, at least know part of the story of the Humpback Chub. Uh, it's one that is ingrained with us, uh, anyone here. And so to bring that and, and show people uh, the work and, and some of the details, I think, was really cool. And I think people will really start to um, gather more of a, an appreciation for that story with your film. So I just want to thank you for that. Mm. Um, what was, what were some of the obstacles? You touched on a couple of them, but not many. What were some of the obstacles they're facing with the humpback chub? Well, there, there were two big problems for the humpback chub. Um, one, one was the fact that we built all these dams in, you know, in the West. And that basically disrupted uh, the, you know their their habitat they they could no longer swim freely throughout these rivers all through the american west but the other thing was that at some point some people decided it was a really good idea if we just eliminate the native fish and so maybe we could just dump a bunch of poison called rotenone into the water and we could just wipe out all the native fish and then we could stock the the you know the the streams with uh, with a non-native species that people like to eat more than the native fish. And so there was a real concerted effort to try to eliminate fish like the humpback chub. And they almost succeeded. And uh, fortunately, we've, we've kind of come to our senses and we realize that uh, it's not a good idea to eliminate species that have evolved with a particular landscape for, you know, for millions of years. And so... Uh, you know, we now have to work really, really, really hard to undo the damage that was done, sometimes accidentally. Like, you know, I don't think anyone was building a dam to try to wipe out native fish. But pouring poison into the water was a very conscious attempt to uh, wipe out that native population. So those those were the big hurdles. and um, And so we're still dealing with... The consequences of that today but you know we're, we're still poisoning species today i mean i i'm coming off of um a, dis, a, a tuesday night 
a Tuesday, Wednesday night until 11.30 in Boulder, the Open Space Board of Trustees was talking about which way they're going to get rid of through poisons, even if it's carbon monoxide poison or carbon dioxide poison, um, 30,000 prairie dogs in our yeah. agriculture irrigated lands area, and it's our crop lands. And I get where they're coming from, but that's 30,000 animals. And so it, it's still happening all the time. And this is just this one small spot in Boulder, um, Colorado, of all places. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a story of yeah, us trying to take control mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talked about resources, uh, seeing animals and, and the such as, as resources for us to use, um, but also for us to try to eliminate um, as well if, if they get in our way. So. Because, because we don't understand the role that they play, in, you know, in, 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 a, in a habitat system. So it's like, oh, if we get just get rid of them, everything will be better. But in fact, the long-term consequences of that are, are you know, are, are, are frequently completely unpredictable and, and often extremely um, negative. And, and in this case, you know, which is, can happen any day in any community where there's prairie dogs, they're saying, well, they can do what they want to do over here, but just not over here. But how many times can we say they can't do it over here, you know, until we know that we can still let them do it where we let them play out their ecological roles where we want them to. And we don't know the answer to that. So it's it's scary every time. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just, you know, setting wild things in a fenced playground. It's it's about protecting more than just the animals. It's protecting the balance Mm -hmm. Um, And and the opportunity and the option. Yeah. To have wildlife left. Yeah, yeah, that that'd be nice. Yeah, right. <laughs> if we could keep some of that around, yeah. some of these beautiful creatures. That's uh, what museums are for, right? Yeah. Just, <laughs> the ones, zoos. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah zoos. Yeah. 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 We just, just we don't need them running around, getting getting into trouble and causing mischief. Yeah. Just put them in cages. Everything that'll be fine. And that's been super successful, right? Yeah. As humans, exactly. we, we, yeah. we can breed them totally, no problems. Yeah. There no problem. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's going to take that clip out of context and. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> and and I'm going to be a pariah somewhere. Yeah, these these filmmakers are terrible. Listen yeah. to this. They're talking about how we need more zoos. <laughs> um, this film brings together these three stories, I think, in a, a beautiful way and something I haven't necessarily seen, or at least I don't remember seeing, and that's putting up these, you call them heroes, at the end of the film and putting them up and putting their names and their pictures Aww. in a very prevalent way and I thought that was a beautiful touch and a great dedication and I think a lot of the pictures were on purpose showing them you know like I said before gritty and dirty and because that's that's their daily life no at some point I I I I wanted people to connect the names with the faces and you know and, and we very consciously minimize the amount of 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 interview footage that you see on screen um, even though the whole film pretty much other than the, the little bits of narration from me um, the whole the whole all the story the whole film is told by in the voice in the words of the the, the subjects of the film and so um, you but you don't always see them because it's not it, it it's not a film that shows a lot of interviews. Usually we would show just a tiny little bit just to kind of allow the audience to link a voice to a face. But 
we minimize that completely. And in, in, in fact, I almost consider just eliminating it altogether. But it, it seemed important to link the, the, the face to the voice a little bit. So the, the pictures at the end were a way of like paying tribute to people and to their hard work, but also for a way of, of linking a name to a face. Hmm. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, I'm so glad you, you did leave that in um, because it was a great touch at the end uh, to re-remind us all of the hard work because this is a story of successes and we need to know exactly where those successes came from. They came from these people right here that and these names, um, you know, and so, yeah, thank you for, for leaving that in. And, you know, I, and also I think that the, the, the other thing is that um, it was really important that we... We, we show how kind of science-based all of this work is. And, you know, we didn't dwell on that too much, but I think there's, there's enough in there, like particularly in, in the Chubb sequence. There's, there's a whole segment where you see people, um, you know, implanting the microchips in the fish and weighing and measuring the fish. So you can see the scientific process in action and the same thing happens with the prairie dogs mm -hmm. when you we go into the you know your little field lab mm -hmm. in sean's shed mm -hmm. um you know and on on the lower brule reservation um you know science is informing all of this work this isn't people just kind of winging it it's like oh let's just grab some prairie dogs and move them over here it's all really rigorously informed by research and I, you know, that's a, you know, we, we didn't dwell on that, but it's definitely there in the film. And that was a really important part of, of the story. Amen to that. Yeah. So everyone listening to this and everyone out there who gets inspired by this, we're not all going to be able to go grab an auger and create a new prairie dog hole. We're not all going to be able to go smash some trees around a river. Um, but what can we do to become more a part of the story of nature makers? Well, um, I would say two things. Um, one is whatever piece of nature you love or care about, um, tell your city council member or your representative or your senator or any of the decision makers around you. Just tell them thank you and you want to keep that wild and you want to keep that species on the landscape. Um, it's the grassroots organizing that matters. So anytime you hear people asking for comments, um, public comments on any issue that might you know pique your interest a little bit take the action it might take one minute it might take five minutes it makes a difference and that would be the the biggest thing i have and then um all of our communities have these local issues and just participating in the field and volunteering in a in a local way um creates that connection that we all kind of need to take that five or one minute action and keep us all going yeah literally keep us all going on this planet mm -hmm. Well, thank you guys so much for sitting down and helping us to dig a little bit deeper into the stories and the filmmaking of this beautifully shot, beautifully put together film. Um, kudos and cheers to not only you guys, but all the people that you met and all the stories and all the hard workers out there. Really appreciate that. And yeah, again, thanks for bringing this film to Flagstaff. Okay. Thanks, thank you, Dick. Thank you so much for having us. All right, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening in. and digging a bit deeper into the film with us. For more information, simply go to the show notes for a couple of links on the filmmakers and the films. If you enjoyed this, please take about 30 seconds to subscribe and rate the podcast so that we know y'all are digging it. I'm Nick Irvin, you're you, 
And this has been the 2020 Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival Podcast. Cheers and see you next episode.